Well, good morning, everybody. Uh, keep your Bibles open to Mark chapter 3. I just closed mine. That was foolish. There we go. I'm going to pray for us, and then we'll jump into this passage. Let's bow our heads. Uh, we thank you, Lord, that uh, you are a God who speaks. Uh, so we pray, Lord, that you would speak uh, through your word this morning, uh, that in your mercy you might speak through my words, but also that you would speak through your spirit that convicts us of the truth. So we ask this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Uh, well, a couple of weeks ago, I had a coffee with Dave, who's sitting over there. We didn't plan to wear the same shirt today, but it's nice to know you have impeccable taste. Uh, and uh, while Dave and I were catching up, he suggested a book that he thought I might read uh, called 40 Rockets by uh, Craig Josling. It's a great book about growing and sharing in our faith and how we might uh, share in the workforce. Uh, but one of the 40 rockets that has it, I think we're actually on the next slide, possibly, there we go, um, is it asks the question, uh, do you have a mission statement in your life? Now, of course, for some of us, our mission statements are those nebulous things that no one can ever really remember and that corporations change every six months. Uh, but at their best, a mission statement is that thing that gives us clarity. It cuts through all of the chatter and it encapsulates uh, what an organization is really about and hopefully what a person is really about, according to Craig Jostling. Uh, so when I was uh, applying to come here and uh, work at OEC, it was really helpful to me that I could go onto our website, uh, I could look on the very front page and I could see uh, on the masthead what we are all about. Making disciples of Jesus, God's people taking God's message with God's help to Orange and beyond. If I was coming to Orange thinking, I've found a, a comfortable church where I can sit here, I don't have to meet anybody new, I can just do the same thing again and again and just look inward, uh, this would have been the wrong church for me. Because we're all about sharing good news with God's help uh, out in our community. Uh, similarly, as we've kicked off 2022, uh, it, it's been great that we've had this a little uh, uh, mag magnet that we can put up on our fridges. Uh, that we are praying boldly, that we're engaging regularly, and that we're inviting many. A clear mission statement speaks not only about the things that we do, but hopefully it really connects with our identity, uh, who we are as a people, and how we actually live out those things we do uh, in a meaningful way. And in the Gospel of Mark, the mission statement for the Gospel is declared in the very first chapter. It's very clear what Jesus is all about. In Mark 1.15 we read, The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. And from the very beginning, this is what Jesus is about. He is all about the kingdom of God. It's not just thing that he teaches, a thing that he teaches with a sense of authority that has never been seen before, although that is true, Mark 1.23. But it's also a thing that he shows in his identity as he shows that he has power over sickness and impure spirits and over nature. Jesus makes it clearer about his identity in that great story as, he, as the paralyzed man is lowered down into a room that he's in. And he could have just said, oh, well, I'm going to miraculously heal you like he had a whole bunch of other times. But instead, Jesus shows who he is by saying, your sins are forgiven. And he shows that he has the very authority of God in what he does. The kingdom of God is near. And Jesus makes it clear that he is the king of that kingdom. 
And so with that in mind, the big picture in our passage today is clear. Jesus has shown in these first two uh, chapters that he is the king of the kingdom. And now all of those people who are gathering around him are being forced to ask two questions of themselves. Number one, are they on mission with Jesus? And more importantly, do they understand Jesus' identity as a person? And so today we're seeing five different uh, groupings who are being asked these questions. Uh, We have the crowds and the impure spirits who sort of come together, Uh, the disciples, the Pharisees, and finally Jesus' family have to answer this question as well. And we're going to finish up by asking, what does it mean for me? Am I on mission for Jesus as well? Uh, Well, one of the great movies to come out of the 1980s is the Eddie Murphy classic, Coming to America. Uh, Out of curiosity, has anybody seen that movie? Oh, okay, at least to some of us, that's good. It tells the story of uh, Prince Akeem. He's part of this wealthy, imaginary African nation called Zamunda, and he was going to get married off to a woman he didn't want to marry, and so he says, can I go to the USA? Can I uh, find true love? Can I really connect with somebody who loves me for who I am? And as the movie kicks off, things are going well for Akeem. He's a witty and a charismatic guy. He cares for people and people like him. But he keeps on getting in trouble because he keeps on running into uh, Zamundan citizens. And they know him for this great character and they bow down for him. My favourite moment is when he's uh, at a a basketball game. He's going to the toilet and as somebody walks past him, he recognises him and falls down onto his knees in an act of worship. Uh, You are the great prince. It's, It's the most exciting thing in my life to meet you. Akemi is a man that has a mission statement. He wants to find true love, love that is about understanding who he is as a person. But the wrong people keep on threatening to blow his cover because they see something different. And this is exactly the problem that we have playing out in verses 7 to 12 of chapter 3. Jesus and his disciples withdraw to the lake, but a large crowd of people follow him. People have gathered from Judea and Jerusalem and Idumea and the regions around Jordan, Tyre and Sidon. There are so many people that Jesus has to step back onto a boat so he can have a bit of water between him and the crowds. And yet the people continue to push forward. Mark is perfectly clear in verse 10 that the crowds are on board with Jesus' mission statement insofar as he's showing the power he has. He's declaring the kingdom by healing the sick. And so we read, uh, for he'd healed many so that those with diseases were pushing forward to touch him. But so far that appears to be the extent of what their expectations are. But just like the Zamundan citizens, there are impure spirits there as well. And as Jesus exercises uh, these spirits from people, they see Jesus for who he is, his identity. They see beyond that mission statement that they fear and they understand who Jesus is. And so we read verse 12, Whenever the impure spirits saw him, they fell down before him and they cried out, You are the Son of God. But he gave them strict orders not to tell the others about him. The crowds aren't yet sure about Jesus' real identity. They don't know yet that Jesus has a bigger mission than just healing people, but he's really declaring the kingdom of God in a powerful way that will lead to his death and resurrection. So at the moment, their major mission statement is, can I get a bit of what he has to offer? Could I be healed? Could I be freed from something? Meanwhile, the impure spirits know Jesus' identity. They say to him, you are the son of God. 
But Jesus has to quiet them because even though they know his identity, they are not on mission with him. And he understands that he is heading toward Jerusalem and doesn't want to get caught up in these moments. All of Jesus' miracles, while important, are secondary things. They're the signs of the power that he has, but they point to that bigger goal that he has, which is to bring in the kingdom of God. Like Prince Akeem, Jesus knows that it would not be good if he gets derailed by people who recognize him but aren't actually helping his chief mission. And so now Jesus moves. Often in Mark you can see he moves to a different place and we have a different teaching point. He heads from the lakeside to the mountainside and this is the moment where he calls his 12 disciples. And so you'd hope this is going to be the moment where things should be much better. These are the guys who are his inner circle. They're all going to be on board. They're all moving in the right direction. We see that Jesus actually knows them and that he values them in a meaningful way. Uh, We start that because he he gives them all nicknames. He is very Australian in that way. Uh, Long before Dwayne Johnson was called the rock, Jesus says to Simon, I'm going to call you Peter. You are the rock. You're going to be one of the foundations of the church. Uh, James and John, he he calls the sons of thunder. Uh, We assume it was because they had a temper. Uh, I was tempted to call my twins the sons of thunder over COVID because uh, things did not always go well with us either. Uh, We see that Jesus is invested in these guys. We also see that Jesus gives the disciples their own mission statement. It's written down in verse 14. Uh, He appointed the twelve that they might A, uh, be with him, and B, that he might send them out to preach and have the authority that he gives them to drive out demons. Uh, Their job is to spend more time with Jesus, to soak in all of the teaching that they can and to grow in their understanding of what he's all about. And then they don't go out with their own authority, they go out with his authority to do other great works and to declare the things they've learned with him. So we have nicknames, we have a mission statement for them, but then we have the really surprising thing, and that is uh, that we have a major spoiler. Uh, Things aren't perfect when it comes to the disciples. Uh, One of the new experiences I've had over the last two years in COVID is I've been trying to read uh, outside of my usual genre in books, and that means I've I've read a number of Australian murder mysteries that have popped up in in, in, uh, popularity. Uh, Very quickly, you realise these books have a a sort of way that they're structured. Uh, The murder happens at the beginning and then the clues start coming together and then you see a couple of false leads and it's always the last couple of pages where everything comes together and you understand how it all works. But have you noticed that Mark doesn't do this? He would make a horrible murder mystery writer because he tells you all of the key details right from the beginning. So verse 1, chapter 1, he tells us Jesus is the Son of God. There's no needing to work it out. It's it's not a thing thing that we slowly sort of unravel, but it's right there. Chapter 2, when the paralyzed man is healed, uh, Jesus makes it clear that he has the power of God. But most strangely, here in chapter 3, the reader is reminded that even though Jesus is picking these 12 disciples... Judas Iscariot is the one who's going to betray Jesus. And so long before we get to that story, we know exactly what's going to happen when we get to later in the book. There's a member of this group who really isn't on mission. He hasn't read uh, the mission goal. Now, we should be clear, we don't know exactly what is going through uh, Judas' mind. We're not told. 
Uh, John makes it clear that uh, Judas does have his own mission statement as well, which is get the money. If you read John's Gospel, you can read about how uh, Judas was the one who look up, looked after the shared money bag, and he often used to uh, dip in and help himself to cash from that. You can read about that in John 12, uh, 16. And also that he's the one that ends up selling out Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. So you might read this, you might read here in verse in chapter 3 that we know he's the one who's going to do this and ask the question, uh, why does Jesus make him one of the disciples then? Surely if he knew he was a betrayer, he could have pushed him out at this point. But here is where we see that even though Judas might not really be on mission with Jesus in the way that he should be, uh, Jesus' plans and Jesus' goals will be met even despite what Judas does. The greater plan to usher in the kingdom of God isn't going to be stopped by just one man. And in fact, just like Joseph uh, 2,000 years earlier who got sold into a slavery by his brothers and then ends up being the one who saves all of them, we realize that Judas might have meant things for evil, but God in his grace and mercy can use these evil plans that he has and use them for the good of God's kingdom and for the good of Jesus' mission. The crowds enjoy the, the structure of the mission, but they don't really understand why Jesus is healing them. They just want a good thing. The impure spirits fear Jesus' mission because they know his identity. They know what it's going to mean for them. But with the disciples, we get to watch them sort of open up like a flower as they slowly understand what's going on and they keep on messing up and then they get it right. And better yet, we see that Judas uh, has other plans altogether. But nevertheless, he plays a part that he can't even anticipate in bringing about God's greater plan for salvation. And then next we have Jesus' family. But we're going to deal with them at the end of the chapter because they get two goes in this story. But instead we're going to deal with the scribes that have come up, the scribes and the Pharisees who come down from Jerusalem to judge Jesus. If ever there was a, a people who should understand who he is and what he's about, it's the people that spend the most time reading the Old Testament. They have an understanding of this a Messiah who's supposed to come and be a deliverer. But they are the ones who get it wrong and they try and undermine Jesus in the most dramatic way. Has anybody here heard of the thing called Godwin's Law? Excellent. It's one of my favorite little internet things. Godwin's law says that the longer the discussion goes on in the internet, the more likely it is that one party will compare the other party to Hitler. Uh, I, I don't know if you, you know, you've read discussions online, if you ever go down the foolish rabbit hole of these, these long Facebook fights, and inevitably somebody realizes they're not going to win otherwise, and so they, say, they just say, that sounds like something that Hitler would say. It's one thing to not entirely get who Jesus is, to find out that he's tough and confrontational. I think all of us find some of Jesus' uh, uh, teaching confrontational at times. But the scribes approach it in a a way that is completely different. Uh, There's no engagement with Jesus. There's no willingness to understand who he is and why he's doing these things. And interestingly, there's no denial of the fact that Jesus has done some miracles that are frankly astounding. Instead, the easiest way they have to try and negate Jesus and the power that he has and the following that he is getting is to do the first century equivalent of Godwin's law. They attribute everything that he's done to Beezable, who was a Philistine god whose name had become a byword for the prince of demons. 
the first century equivalent of really comparing him to Hitler. Throw some mud and hope that people won't think too deeply about it. But unfortunately for our scribal friends, Jesus does push back. How can Satan drive out Satan? If a kingdom's divided against itself, the kingdom can't stand. And if Satan opposes himself and is divided, he can't stand, but he's finished. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his possessions unless he first ties up the strong man, and then he can plunder his house. Jesus can't be doing these things by the power of Satan because everything that he is doing is undoing evil works in this world. In fact, Jesus is showing that he has the power to bind Satan just as he binds up these impure spirits and then he forces them out of people. This is one of those classic moments where the disciples would have been listening to this and Jesus, they would have agreed with everything Jesus said. He's bringing sight to the blind and he's healing people with diseases. He's showing that he has power over all kinds of uh, uh, bad things in this world. It must be a good thing that he is doing this. But for us, as we read this on the other side of Jesus' death and resurrection, we understand with a clarity that the disciples could have dreamed of. This is the very beating heart of the gospel. Because of the sin that we all carry in our lives, uh, we are separated from God. And if we're not serving God, there's a sense in which we are all uh, in Satan's house. If we're not serving God and his greater mission, we're serving some other mission. We are part of Satan's family. But through his sinless life and substitutionary death, Jesus binds Satan, who might have otherwise won us over to himself. As he takes the penalty of sin on himself, Jesus plunders people from what would have otherwise been Satan's possessions and he wins us over into God's kingdom. When we put our trust in Jesus, we are redeemed from a life of separation and we are redeemed for a life that is seeking to honour God with all that we have and all that we do. Redeemed for a life that reaches out beyond the 70, 80 or 90 years that God grants us uh, into eternal life with our creator and our redeemer. We are brought from one household to another household, welcomed into God's household, not only as residents of this new house, but God calls us his adopted children in this house. The mission statement of the Pharisees and the scribes is clearly protect your power at all costs, even if it means calling good evil and evil good. And Jesus' warning to them couldn't be more serious in verses 28 to 30. Truly I tell you, people will be forgiven for all sins and whatever blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. Because they, that is the Pharisees, were saying, Jesus has an unclean spirit. This is, the Pharisees continue to see God at work through Jesus' preaching ministry, through the miracles that he's done, and yet they actively refuse to acknowledge anything of Jesus. They are blaspheming the Spirit in as much as they're denying the work of God's Spirit that is right in front of them. If in their hearts they end up calling good evil and evil good and they make a decision about who they follow, then they are grieving the Spirit. They are choosing to put aside the spirit of God and have followed the spirit of man. God is a God of love and of mercy, but to deny God's own son who is working right in front of them, to call good evil and evil good, 
is to do something that will separate them from the kingdom of God. They have an opportunity to turn back, but will they? And so we find ourselves left with the final group of people, Jesus' family, and they have these two different interactions, and they can be quite confusing. In the first instance in verses 20 and 21, Jesus enters a house, the crowd gather around, and so it's such a tight thing that they can't even eat. And when his family hear this, they set out to restrain him because they say he's out of his mind. Uh, Now, uh, for a lot of us, as we read this, we might be thinking bigger picture, and we're thinking, oh, the the family think he's out of his mind because uh, he thinks he's the son of God. Uh, But do you notice Mark makes it quite clear what he's thinking here? Uh, There are crowds that are gathering. It's so crowded that they can't even sit down in the room that they're in. Uh, And in first century uh, uh, Judea, if you are bringing big crowds of people and they're following one person, uh, their Roman rulers would be getting very much uh, worried about this. Uh, Is there somebody who's getting ready for rebellion? Uh, The Israelites had formed, they'd done this a couple of hundred years earlier, and they're going to do it again 40 years later in 70 AD. And so Jesus' family are concerned. He's out of his mind. If he gets this much attention, if everybody starts gathering toward them, he's going to get crushed by the Romans. But in the second interaction with Jesus, this is the one that really sticks out for people in verse 31. His mother and his brothers came, and standing outside they sent word to him and called. A crowd was sitting around him and told him, your mother and your brothers and your sisters are standing outside and asking for you. He replied to them, who are my mother and my brothers? Looking at those in a circle around him, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does the will of God is my brother and sister and mother. Some people find this really confronting. as Jesus denying and renouncing his own family? Does this mean that if I am a Christian, that I have to step away from my own family that is meaningful to me and I have to gather only with other people. But of course, here's where we learn that really important lesson that Scripture is the best way to interpret Scripture. We could look briefly at John 19.25 and we can see this is not what Jesus means because as he's on the cross, standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother, his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas and Mary Magdalene, When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple he loved, we assume that's John, standing there, he said to his mother, woman, here is your son. Then he said to the disciple, here is your mother. And for that hour, the disciple took her into his home. That is, even at the very point of death, Jesus loves his mum, and as he's dying, his chief concern is to make sure, well, he has many concerns, but one of them is to make sure that his mum is cared for by John. He cared for her. He's invested in her. Jesus' point is not so much here in in Mark chapter 3 that we have to deny our earthly family and that to be, if you're part of God's mission and you're on mission with Jesus, then you have to ignore everybody else. It's not that when we hear that the kingdom of God is here, repent and believe the good news, we need to respond by repenting and, and denying our own families but instead that when we become part of God's family, we are adopted into a bigger family as well. We are brothers and sisters in Christ. As we gather together as a church, we know we are surrounded by this great cloud of witnesses that we will spend forever with in heaven. And that that does change our perspective sometimes. 
Uh, there can be moments where it does create family tensions, hopefully not for many of us. Uh, I just finished reading a, a wonderful book called uh, I Dared to Call Him Father, uh, which is about a, a Muslim woman who becomes a Christian in Pakistan, and for that, uh, it meant for her that she did have members of her family that now actually wanted to kill her for her faith. But it also meant that other members of her family became Christians soon after that. Uh, But she realized that whether they hated her or loved her, that she longed for them to know Jesus' love because she knew that she was part of of a forever family. New life and new hope that came through Jesus as Lord and Savior and now brother. And so all of this leaves us with the same two questions that we see are worked out amongst these five people. Am I on mission with Jesus? Do I share the mission statement with him? But more importantly, do I understand his identity? If we are on mission with Jesus, if we hear the good news about what he's doing, there are wonderful ways that we can serve and we can be part of this here at OEC. In the next couple of months, we have some really exciting things coming up. We're moving into our own building for the first time, this great beacon, and we can say to people, come and be part of this, be part of this family. Come and join with us, this place where we come and share the goodness of the gospel. We've got the Mark drama coming up soon after that, a great opportunity for people to hear this story and to realize that they can be part of the story as well. The kingdom of God is near and we can declare with others that they must repent and believe so that they can be part of God's forever family. But equally, if this is a reality for this, then we need to make sure that we understand the identity of Jesus and that needs to shape not only the actions that we do, but the orientation of our lives as well. If you look at the time we spend on things, it becomes very clear very quickly what are the things that we value most. Is it success? Maybe it is family. Family is always my number one priority and if anything else, including church or reading my Bible butts into it, they come second. Maybe it's money. But if we understand that Jesus is the forever king, that he is the king of the kingdom, And yet at the same time, he is the one who is offering those keys of the kingdom to us. And we truly understand his identity, then his mission statement becomes not like a corporation thing, but a statement that is about life and love and hope. Let's thank God for that now in prayer. Let's bow our heads. Uh, We thank you, Lord, that um, just as we uh, struggle to understand you, and to follow you fully. Uh, We can be encouraged to see these different people as they work through these questions themselves. Uh, We pray, Lord, that we might be on board with your mission statement as we seek to uh, live more like you and to love others like you love them as well. So we pray, Lord, that as we truly grapple with your identity, that you would make your position as the forever king clearer and that as we hold on to that, that that would shape our lives more clearly as well. So we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.